Welcome to the FT Advisor Quarterly Review, where some of us FT Advisorites get together to talk about some of the things that have been keeping us busy and possibly keeping you or your clients up at night. And indeed, it has been a busy period with a budget, the continuing cost of living crisis, and Elon Musk changing the Twitter icon to Cabo Sue the dog. What a time to be alive. Joining me, Simone Kuriaku, editor of FT Advisor, is Amy Austin, the news editor. And David Thorpe, investment editor for FT Advisor and contributing editor of Asset Allocator. How's it going, guys? Yes, not bad, thank you. News has been quite busy this month, um, as it has been for the rest of the quarter. As you mentioned, we've had budget, you know, we've had the launch of the CDA, we've had everything happening with rate rises. So, yeah, it's still just kind of battling it all. Indeed. Battling it all on Asset Allocator and on the investment patch? Absolutely. Um I've been doing this for many years and there's never been a period where there's been more happening in markets and also in the M&A space. But I guess those two things are are linked. Markets go down, M&A and consolidation goes up. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So strange times in, indeed. Um, David, I'm going to stick with you for a bit and talk about the economy and look at the impact of interest rate rises on markets. So tell us what's been keeping you in column inches. Thanks, Simony. Well, our focus with uh, Vantage Point in in recent months has been around investing in inflationary and recessionary times and really trying to unpick the questions around what asset allocation looks like in these very unusual times in markets. For the coming quarter, we're focused on income investing as clients and advisors battle stagnant economic growth on the one side, which stents company earnings, but still persistently high inflation on the other side, which makes achieving a real rise in the value of income from a portfolio very tough indeed. Mm. And what about sort of coming into 2023? We had uh, sort of high hopes um, for 23 and uh, yet... um, (laughs) <laughs> it seems to be that actually people have been quite um, quite sidelined. Indeed. Well, as you say, coming into 2023 in, in January, markets, uh, markets rose quite stoutly. And that was really based on um, expectations around the global economic outlook were so pessimistic in sort of Q2 and Q3 of 22 that any little bit of good news at all uh, was likely to lead to an upswing. And we got that good news at the start of 2023 mm. when apparently the winter was milder than expected, although it was plenty unmild for me. Indeed, indeed. But uh, since then, there has actually been some meagre progress with the UK avoiding recession in fourth quarter of of last year and some of the PMI data for this year, not just for the UK, but for Europe also being a little bit better than expected. And that did boost sentiment. However, I think the concept that might take hold in the coming months is that of an earnings recession whereby company profits collapse because they can't pass on price increases, but the wider economy avoids a recession. That's an outcome that's probably positive for the country and the world as a whole, but presents a bit of a dilemma for investors because they don't invest in the economy. They invest in the underlying companies, as mm. fund managers always tell us, when the economy is in a bad way. So it'll be interesting to see 
how bond markets in particular perform in such a scenario. Indeed. And, and you mentioned a very interesting word there, David, the sentiment. And we've seen a lot of uh, sentiment and, and commentary uh, around every time there's a Bank of England announcement on the horizon. Um, Amy, what's it like for, for you on the news desk? Do you get sort of a sense of nervousness or is it just the same old messages that we see in our inboxes? Yeah, I think in the beginning there was a bit of, you know, nervousness around what would happen, what it would look like. But I think we're almost getting quite used to it now. You know, every time we see inflation stay the same or rise, we kind of know what's coming with the bank rate. So we kind of, you know, we're kind of expecting it. You know, we can draft stories in advance like most people can, you know, and kind of you know, everyone's trying to predict what's going to happen next. Um, so it's not necessarily coming as much as a shock. And mortgage lenders, for example, are kind of pricing rate rises in. So we're not really seeing rates going up. Instead, we're actually seeing them fall. Um, yeah. After they soared, obviously, following Liz Truss's mini budget, where they just went a bit crazy. Um, so the commentary, yeah, it's pretty same, same, you know, this needs to be done to combat inflation, shouldn't spook markets too much. That's kind of, you know, the general gist that we're seeing from people. Yeah, and I like the fact that many advisors are still being that calm, reasonable voice uh, amongst a lot of the kind of the, the more scary stuff you see on social media with, with yeah. people panicking. But it's definitely a case, you know, if for those people without financial advisors telling them just to keep calm and carry on, it must be quite, quite frightening, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I've spoken to a fair few advisors over this, as you can imagine. And, you know, it is just, you know, keeping up communications with clients, telling them, you know, not to worry, you know. And most of advisors' clients, you know, they are coming up to retirement. They've seen all of this before. And um, I think sometimes the young amongst us forget that because it's mm. the first time we're seeing it. Um, but it has happened before, you know, we have got through it, it has been okay, people have, you know, been able to retire okay, so I think it's just the message of, let's ride this out, you know, we're here as advisors, we look after your portfolio, we do this, we do that, we know what we're doing, let's ride it out, keep everything going, ticking along, we'll keep checking it, and then, you know, go from there. (laughs) Indeed, the young young amongst us, I think that's definitely not including me, but... uh, (laughs) I'm in the us and you're in the young uh, element <laughs> there, I think. Um, but Amy brings in a really interesting point about sort of investor behaviour. Um, David, we've seen investors sort of uh, dive in and out to the markets at the wrong time, <laughs> always at the wrong time. Um, but what's happening with that sort of old favourite, the sort of the low cost trackers like the FTSE 100? What are investors up to with those things? It's a curiosity of markets right now that uh, the UK, the FTSE, was actually the second best performer of the lot in 2022, although it didn't feel like it at the time, I'm sure. Behind, But it was behind only the commodity-rich markets of Latin America for that year. But no one seems to have told asset allocators as investors continue to pull cash from the home market. Investment Association data shows a further $1.4 billion was withdrawn in January, and that's mm. the 18th consecutive month of withdrawals. And even Nick Train, a fund manager who literally runs two UK large cap equity funds, recently described the home market as a backwater because the technology businesses just aren't there. And that's him doing the opposite of talking mm. in his own book. But as markets revise down their interest rate expectations, that data is showing that investors are actually moving back towards the UK, US equity funds, excuse me, presumably mm. on the basis that long duration assets are the place to be when the interest rate cycle peaks or indeed rates begin to be cut. And that, and if they're doing that, they're doing that at the expense of the commodity and bank stocks, which are short duration assets, which do well when interest rates are expected to rise. 
but unfortunately those latter are the hallmark of mm. the UK market. Yes, of course. And with inflation unexpectedly ticking up again um, and with the Bank of England sort of announcing its rate rise programme and the expectations for getting inflation back on target seems to sort of be getting further and further out, um, despite what um, some of the commentators say. There's just so much nervousness. And we've seen that nervousness around the state pension, haven't we, Amy? I don't know whether um, Rishi Sunak just wanted to avoid... Britain doing a France, although I'd, you're not very good at doing France. I mean, we'd probably just have about 12 people standing outside Parliament with a placard. We're not, we're not very good at overthrowing governments, but um, we did manage to seem to push back on the rise in the state pension age. Yeah, so the government has, you know, confirmed that it's not going to increase the state pension age from 67, 68 any sooner than was currently planned. Um, you know, it's currently 66 and is due to increase to 68 after 2044, which obviously seems ages away, but it's it's not for, you know, people coming up to retirement. Mm. However, you know, reports earlier this year suggested that the government wanted to bring this forward to between 2037 and 2039. But in the state pension age review, which we've all been, you know, looking forward to eagerly, which mm. was published at the end of March, the government, you know, confirmed that no change would be made to the legislative timetable. So it's still currently set to rise to 67 by 2028 and then 68 by 2046. And, you know, I think we think this is going to probably be a good thing. You know, it was to win the voters. You know, that's yeah. what people have said. You know, I think at this time when we've got cost of living crisis and actually life expectancy is kind of slowing at the moment that, you know, if we're going to put people up in, you know, highest day pension state, it's just not going to work. Especially when older workers, you know, they're giving up work early because of mm. poor ill health. And, you know, at times when probably people can't stop working, like due to cost of like, living, you know, I'm going to assume I'm going to work well into my 60s, exactly. 70s. You know, I, I just kind of accept that now. So I think as well when it's, you know, it's harder to save, it's harder to, you know, put more money into retirement when you're trying to, you know, deal with you know the cost of bread soaring or yeah yeah you know the cost of Lurpak now being like almost a fiver is just insane but they have done a slight rebrand yeah has slightly changed (laughs) which is great greatly exciting so yeah I think it's a difficult sale if we try and move Mm. the state pension and Jeremy Hunt can't uh, be on the one hand trying to get more older workers to remain in the workforce or to sort of maybe bring people back from early retirement into the workforce uh, at the same time as kind of keep bringing forward the state pension age, you know, because that sort of acts as a sort of perverse disincentive, I guess, for the government's plans to uh, to boost um, UK workforces. But um, um, you could call it a win for, for consumers. It's probably more a win for uh, the, the, the political parties. But um, can we just carry on looking at uh, consumer duty um, we've got so a big story here. That's 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 massive. We've got the new Consumer Duty Alliance, which has just launched, and the Consumer Duty, of course, is coming in. How are things on the the news desk, Amy, with uh, looking into this? I mean, it's a daily it's a daily <laughs> story, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Can, in terms of, I'll start with Consumer Duty first. But in terms of that, it appears that you know many firms still aren't as prepared as the FCA would like them to be which is a bit worrying seeing as it comes into force in about three months' time. So, you know, people really do need to get their skates on. It really doesn't leave them a lot of time. I guess it's more the smaller firms that may be worrying about it rather than the big ones who have massive compliance teams that can kind of take this on for them. Um, but, yeah, consumer duty is a massive hit, you know, with advisors, with 
providers, anyone really, because seem, people just seem to want to know more about it. For example, mm. you know, the FCA has been putting out a weekly podcast on the consumer duty, which we have been covering, you know, every week as, yeah. as and when it comes out. And it's, you know, been telling them about, you know, like the authorization process and how that might change, you know, what fees might look like and what the FCA is doing around it. So I think the FCA has been quite proactive and, you know, being out there and being like, look, this is what we want it to look like. This is how it should be. And if the consumer duty is excess, it may be that advisors and, you know, the rest of the profession are kind of no longer over-regulated in the future. If they, you know, if best practice wins out here and, you know, it does go to plan and, there are, you know, I don't think there will ever not be a bad player out there. You know, there's always, yeah. there's always in everything you do, there's always someone. There's always someone. Trying to bend the rules or something. Um, but I think if the general majority, uh, we've got best practice, especially in the advice profession, I think it would be so good for them to, you know, earn that trust back from the public. Um, but yeah, mm. and I think it would be overall a good thing. But yeah, in terms of the Consumer Duty Alliance that we've seen come out, it's still quite early days. Obviously, they've just launched, they're trying to get their members in. Um, I was told by Keith Richards, who is the CEO of the Consumer Duty Alliance, that, you know, they've had 4,000 advisors already sign up and that's numbers growing on the on the daily. So I think they are definitely got a lot of support. I think good things will be coming, you know, in the advice profession's way. For example, he wants to promote a more joined up profession, like, you know, where the big players can help the small players and vice versa, because, you know, each one comes with their own skills at yes, the end of, of course. the day. Yeah. And it wants to, you know, get advisors talking more to each other about the challenges they face, like especially around consumer duty. So, you know, how they overcome this, you know, for example, X has this problem. Oh, how have you gone about it? Oh, really? That's great. Like, let, maybe we can do it that way. And I think that's how, you know, they see it. Not, you know, trying to be bigger and better than any of the trades, any of the, you know, the professional bodies. It's not about that. It's about all bringing everyone together, you know. Yeah. Everyone working together. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, promoting the profession for... Once, which is what we're doing. Well, yes, I'll come on to promoting our profession um, very briefly, but I just want to sort of t talk to, to, to David as well. Um, what about wealth managers and how do they seem to be dealing with consumer duty? Because obviously it affects uh, everyone. Sure. Well, we had the opportunity recently to catch up with Michael Bishop, who's the CEO for Wealth Management at WH Ireland, which with assets under management of around £2 billion, it's fair to say, is, is at the the smaller end of the, the distribution. But his view was that consumer duty disrupts the old stockbroker model where a client had one person who did, did everything for them. Mm -hmm. And Michael's view was that that suited the bigger players. They had the scale, they had the brand name, they had uh, the, the recognition and the people and the, the book of clients that often passed down through generations of families. Whereas his view is that under consumer duty, that model will be challenged and that there will really be a necessity to have both a financial planner and an investment manager involved with every client. Mm. And in that sort of world, maybe the scale that came from being a stockbroker uh, type model uh, disappears. So that may well be where we see an opportunity for some of the smaller firms to challenge the behemoths and you know we've seen some of the behemoth type businesses merge recently and one can only ponder if that's a function of uh of of consumer duty preparation yeah i'm going to ask you to make a prediction david do you think we might see more uh traditional wealth managers or stockbroker style models either doing joint ventures or even buying smaller advice firms well, consolidation is something we've we've seen for for quite some time, and I think it's it's only going to continue because of 
both consumer duty but other regulatory issues and and pressures and because particularly in that model portfolio space uh, the margins available to providers are shrinking all of the time so there's two ways that they're going they're either buying each other to try and get scale on on, on that way or secondly they're trying to grow their um, bespoke uh, discretionary business mm. where the, the fees are a little higher and the thing about bespoke is that is one of the areas where it is much easier for a big firm to do it than a small firm to do it arguably so those are probably the two the two routes that are that are out there. Interesting, interesting predictions. Now we mentioned, um, we uh, mentioned the promote your profession campaign. We can't not talk about that. Um, we do believe it's important to create a unified voice and provide practical business support for advisors, planners, power planners, brokers, uh, insurance brokers, mortgage brokers. So we are really looking forward to working with everyone in the financial advice profession, um, whatever your special field of expertise. Uh, it's very important that we hear from you and that we start reflecting back to you how we can help you grow your business, how we can help you recruit and retrain and um, maybe bring on more apprentices. So we're going to be speaking to recruitment consultants and uh, uh, legal experts and accountants and all sorts of people um, who've kind of done it before with bringing on loads of apprentices into the industry. Uh, we're going to speak to key players who've grown their businesses, their advice businesses from scratch and who have made successful buyouts or um, who have successfully merged or created joint partnerships, joint ventures with, with other firms to expand and to grow and to really be a strong presence um, in their local area, in their communities. So we really want to, to hear from you. We want to have peer-to-peer -peer support, best practice, sharing examples of how to do it and how to progress. And uh, yeah, it's quite exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you guys about how you would like to promote your profession and to give it, as uh, Robin Melly said, that parity of esteem um, that you should have as professionals with, with doctors and, and, and lawyers. In fact, I think you're better than doctors and lawyers, but uh, I am, of course, biased. But that is all from us at FT at Advisor at this time. But we're sure that next quarter will be just as interesting, if not more. Thank you, Amy and David. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Do register with FT Advisor to keep abreast of the Promote Your Profession campaign and let us know what you think by emailing the team. In the meantime... Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.